Welcome to the Backstage Project Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Silver. In this episode, we're speaking with Richard Krauss, a respected and beloved media personality and film pundit who's best known as the host of the TV show, Real to Real. Richard, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Good. Thanks for having me. I, I feel like I've been sitting in this chair for about a year and a half in my home office here. Uh, but uh, other than that, I'm doing really well. Well, thank you, and that that's great. That's great to hear. I mean, I, in preparation for our, for our chat today, I, I was catching up with what you have been doing from that home office, and um, I mean, from what I saw, themes around mental health and other themes like it seems like it's really good. And maybe outside of some of the sweet spot that that I've known you for over the years. Yeah, I've I've broadened a little bit. I mean, I do a radio show uh, that covers uh, any number of topics, anything that happens to grab me in the week. Uh, and we've had a wide variety of guests on from, you know, singers and musicians like Moby. Uh, Elvis Costello was on a little while ago. Uh, we and, and so obviously we've talked about their careers, but we also then talk uh, to authors and we've done shows on history. And we did a, a wild show a little while ago all about birds. I have no interest in <laughs> birds whatsoever. Uh, but I had two really interesting guests on uh, that made me interested in, in birds and birding. Uh, and both were interesting to me because uh, one was Jeff Vandermeer, who is a very well-known science fiction writer. And uh, um, he was fascinating. And then we had another guy who's, uh, you know, a, a, a rock and roll musician by day and birder by night. So it was a, a little different take on it than you might expect. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And, and, and it, it seems like it keeps you on your toes. And uh, which is which is what we all need, I think, during these COVID times is to, to keep things fresh so that, you know, we look forward to tomorrow. Although Groundhog Day seems like many days, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, my office seems, uh, as I say, I've been in here uh, for about uh, 15 months now, pretty much nonstop. And so half of it is for television. There's lights and wires and microphones and everything over there. And then the other half is for radio uh, and and everything else. And uh, every day I'm in here taping or shooting something. And uh, I I do kind of feel like uh, when I close my eyes at night, sometimes I can still see the room. And it's perfect. <laughs> I'm having I have flashbacks to the room because I've spent so much time in here. Well, hopefully, with the way things are going in in Canada, and, and that you'll you'll be back in the studio soon enough. Absolutely. So, Richard, you and I have never met before, but I feel like I know you really, really well. And um, and just to kind of contextualize it, you know, before before YouTube or Instagram or even TikTok, before they were ever dreamt up. I mean, you already had a platform that, that I believe, from my own personal experience, a platform that allowed you to make a connection with the audience. So you know, my question is really of, of a personal brand nature. So you know, how, how have you been able to keep your personal brand so relevant for so long at a time when everyone is really a micro-influencer? Yeah, I, because I, I, I think it's partially because I don't really think in those terms. Um, I don't think of myself as an influencer. I'm certainly not, um, you know, someone that people look to uh, to see what products they should be buying and all that kind of thing. I think for me, maybe the the thing about it is uh, um, having a, a sort of a, a continuous line. <laughs> there is a, a brand that I established, which 
I didn't really work to establish in the sense that I didn't think, oh, if I slick my hair back and in the early days wear crazy vintage suits with skinny little ties, people will notice me. That's what I could afford when I started. And my hair has always been slicked back. So, you know, in terms of a personal style, that is just uh, the way that evolved. And I stuck with it. And and people seem to, um, you know, relate to it somehow. They They certainly... Uh, it gets brought up a lot, the hair and the glasses and the whole thing. Um, and then other than that, I think just being authentic, you know, being authentic to uh, whatever it is that I'm talking about, whether it's the movie industry, like we'll talk about today, film, uh, birding, as I mentioned earlier, or whatever it might be. Uh, I think that I bring a certain amount of authenticity to it. And that comes from very early on in my career, I think, when I was 16 and working in radio stations. Uh, and getting fired because I wasn't very good at it and and getting fired because I didn't really bring myself to the table. I brought my idea of what I thought a radio DJ should be. And I remember getting fired from my first big radio gig. And uh, the guy who fired me, Bob McLaren, uh, wasn't happy with them in the moment when it happened. So Bob told me something that has stayed with me forever, and that was, People want to hear about people. They don't want to hear about uh, the trivia that I was using to introduce records. The Rolling Stones have had X many amount of hits, whatever it was that I was spewing out. He said, that's fine. You've got the voice. You, you, know, you, you certainly know music history, but people only want to hear about people. And that is how I've approached everything that I've done uh, since then, whether it is on television or the radio or in my books, uh, everything is grounded in uh, a certain kind of humanity that I think people find appealing. And those words ring true to me and ring loudly in my head almost every day. People want to hear about people. Well, I think it's more than what, what you think or hope people um, are taking away from you. I think you, you have the proof. I mean, you have you've had a great career. It continues to thrive. And, and you know, evidenced by a lot of what we're going to chat about today uh, just how, what an impact you have. And I think in, in our session today, you're going to also have some more impact on people because you're going to you're going to force the audience to think forward a bit about what's going on and what has gone on. Right. And um, and I love the I love the kind of DJ reference. We It has come up a couple times in our various uh, episodes. I think we've got almost three dozen now where there are a couple of very prominent people who were DJs uh, in their youth. I was too, as a 16 year old. Now, now it wasn't on air. It was for like corporate events and weddings. But but still. That. Yeah, it's it's a place where a lot of people started. And, you know, back in those days, it was a long time ago, um, uh, there was no talk radio then, really. I mean, the radio stations played music by and large, uh, and then they'd cut to the news at the top of the hour. And maybe you might have a talk show in the middle of the day somewhere from noon until one, you'd have someone come on. Uh, and, you know, tell talk about gardening or something like that. But by and large, it was all music. And uh, we had, I'm just remembering now, on Sunday mornings, I used to have to do a show called Swap Shop. And it, people would call in and say, well, you know, I've got a chair that I'm willing to trade for. Um, I need some tires for my car or whatever. But the longer that you did the show, by the by the end of the hour, people would call in and say, you know, well, I've got a bicycle. It's only got one wheel, but I'm hoping to get a dollar for it, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. So uh, the, the, the deals got lesser and lesser, you know, less interesting as the as the show went on. Well, it's funny you're mentioning that. And I, I you know, I'm going to hold myself back a bit, but I am. We're doing just a small reno in the house and there's some items that we'd like to 
let's say find a find a better home for it that we don't need anymore. So there is this company. I won't mention them because we don't we don't need to plug them. But a very interesting online uh, auction company that that we've chosen to use. And I'm, my wife has told me very clearly. Uh, we're not going to make a dollar off of this. So, you know, in some future episode, I will, I will tell the audience how we ended up making it out. That's just, it's high tech swap shop exactly. is what that is. Exactly. <laughs> so Richard, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about movies clearly. Um, and I, mean, I know you from your reviews, you're, you're, you're so much more than that today, but let's, let's deal with the kind of here and now um, around, around the movie business and, um, and how it affects the audience. So from your perspective, how well have the studios adapted to this this at-home movie release effort that, that is on streaming services? I think that the studios have uh, done a good job with it. Now, what it means for the future, what it means for two years from now, uh, I'm not exactly sure. But right now, um, I think that entertainment is so important to people. People really, uh, over the last 13 or 14 or 15 months, uh, have needed to be distracted. And that's what I'm hearing. When people get in touch with me, they want to know what shows to binge, what uh, movies to watch, what's going on, because when you turn on the news, it's just a constant, or it has been a constant flow of bad news. Uh, when you go outside for a lot of people, it's depressing. All the stores are closed. Everyone's wearing a mask, which really just heightens the, the feeling that something is terribly wrong in the world. So people have really turned to entertainment. And I think the studios have done uh, a good job in terms of providing that. I think that um, filmmakers may disagree with me to a certain extent because I've never yet met a filmmaker who spent years making a movie and then was thrilled that it debuted on streaming. Uh, they want to see their movies in theaters, and, and I absolutely understand that. Uh, the Quiet, a Quiet Place 2 is a great example of that. They chose uh, not to go theatrical, even though it was very limited, uh, but it's ended up doing very well because it's the kind of movie that demands to be seen with other people. Horror movies in general, I think you need a full uh, audience just to feel the vibe, have someone scream, I don't know, to, to, to feel the communal experience of that. And I think we're missing communal experiences, which is why I think that theaters are gonna come rebounding back in a very big way. Uh, when they all start to reopen and, and we're allowed to go back and eat Twizzlers again and watch movies. But I do think that the studios have done a good job at making sure that there are a stream of films that kind of feel like event movies. You know, Cruella felt like it was kind of a big deal. Um, Luca uh, is kind of a, it's a Pixar movie that you can watch for free on uh, Disney+. Plus. Uh, Disney Plus also had Nomad, which was Nomadland rather, which you know is a film that was poised to win a bunch of Academy Awards when it debuted. It ended up uh, dominating uh, award season, and Disney Plus said, "Here it is for you." So it kind of made you feel like you were part of it. Now, in two years from now, if they're still debuting big, big movies online uh, or on streaming services rather than putting them in theaters. I think we'll have a different conversation. But for right now, I think it's important to keep people uh, interested in new material, not just going back to their nostalgic favorites and and keeping people entertained. No, thank you for your perspective and the insights in, into the audience and, and your connection to them to, to share that with our audience. There are some questions that I'm just not going to ask you because you're, and we're, Andrew, we're going to have to find find someone who can really give us all, all the right answers around 
um, you know, Turner and Warner Media and all, all those properties being sold off to Discovery and how that connects back to the movie business. But we're not going to put Richard on the spot to ask him those kind of questions today. But you, you already answered one of my questions with, with what you just told us. So I wanted to extend it a little bit. And this is really speaking to you as a creator. Uh, but before I ask the question, I, I wanted to let the listeners know, I don't think I've said this before, you know, that uh, that I took an elective in undergrad called Film, Television and Society. So, you know, by no means uh, do I have much credibility at all uh, in, in the space that you do. But I do remember, you know, watching Dr. Strangelove. And I think there was some Michael Moore films like like Roger and Me. And and that's all I'm going to say. I experienced the course and maybe I got a B plus. But, you know, we've seen the small screen, you know, integrate masks and PPE, you know, into the actual content. So I wanted you to think about and help the audience understand how you think, you know, filmmakers will, will take COVID and how will that impact, you know, the types of ideologies that are present in future films or even the genres that, that might emerge. I think that there will probably be uh, a great COVID film made. But I think we're going to have to wait five years until we have some perspective, until we have some distance between uh, right now and and whatever happens five years from now. One day, someone will make a great movie about it. There have been attempts already uh, to make films that are based in and around pandemics, uh, that are uh, based not necessarily during COVID, uh, but there was a movie called Songbird that that took place during um, some kind of pandemic and, and extrapolated on what might happen uh, in the future if a pandemic was to last for years and years and years. Uh, and it bombed spectacularly because people didn't want to see it right now. And that's why I think years from now, when we have some perspective, um, maybe someone will, will make a great film about this. And likely it will be a horror film and likely audiences <laughs> will flock to it. <laughs> Uh, and and have that kind of communal sense of see what we lived through, Do you, and 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 I think it has the potential to be an enormous hit. Now, how COVID will affect the movies that get made? You know, when you have times of great uh, upheaval, when the world is turned on its head, you often find that people turn to slightly darker material. Material, and I look at the success of A Quiet Place too. As an example of that, this is a big horror film that people are really going to say, this is making really good numbers at, at a theater or at theaters that are only half full by law, that, you know, there's not many of them open, they're not open everywhere, and it's doing very well. And that tracks back to almost the beginning of movies. Whenever the world is topsy-turvy, uh, you find that horror movies do really well. And I think it's because people go to uh, a place where they can feel scared, but also feel safe at the same time. You're in a movie theater, you're safe, but you get that dopamine rush that, that you kind of crave when you see something that, that makes your, your, the hairs on your back of your neck stand up. So I think that's happening now. What Moving forward, you know, I expected In the Heights which was so joyful and and so life affirming and that to do uh, much bigger numbers than it's actually done. And I'm not really sure why it hasn't been a runaway big hit. It's done well enough, uh, but it's also what they call day and date in a theater and on a streaming service at the same time. And the theaters have underperformed. It's doing okay on HBO Max in the United States, 
but uh, it's a movie that I would have thought people would want to see right now, a movie that makes you feel better at the end of it than you felt when you were going in. That hasn't been the case. So um, what will be the thing moving forward? That's going to be the big flip of a coin. And I don't think it's going to be big, splashy musicals, which is probably making Steven Spielberg's uh, investors in West Side Story a little uneasy <laughs> right now. Uh, but I, I, I do think that we're going to be in for a renaissance of genre filmmaking. We're going to be, we're going to see a lot of cool horror films uh, because people, I think, uh, again, when the world's upside down, people like that kind of material. Well, uh, to compare it to, you know, another global tragedy or situation, you know, when, when you look at uh, that 9-11 and mm-hmm. come, come from away what was created, I think that's going to the big screen soon. And, uh, a little, little bit of a different spin. So hopefully there are those stories that emerge through COVID, things that we don't, maybe we see them a little bit today, but we don't really know the depths of And Maybe those are some of the stories that balance out the horror movies, or maybe they are the horror movies. I mean, depending on how bad it was. Yeah, Come From Away, uh, which is um, had such tremendous success on stage, um, it, for my money, isn't really uh, a 9-11 movie. 9-11 is kind of the MacGuffin that keeps the action going in this thing. It's the it is the, the part of the story that is the, the key in the engine that turns it all on. But as you get into it, this is a story about resilience and kindness and, and uh, a story about doing the right thing and being loyal and not always asking what's in it for me. And those are, those are things that people respond to in a very big way. And also it's got, you know, a, a great beat and you can dance to it as well. So people enjoy that as well. But um, I don't know that we're going to be seeing that coming out of COVID, but who knows, uh, you know, who knows if someone is working on a COVID musical right now, that could easily be happening. I think that's the exciting part about, about <laughs> creatives, right? They're always working on something. And, and you, you know, you brought up a good point and I don't have a PhD in psychology. Maybe you do. But a lot of what I've experienced personally, uh, you know, through COVID um, is, you know, you see both sides of of people. I think Mm -hmm. you've seen the best of people, hopefully. I know many of us have probably seen kind of the worst of people, and hopefully that hasn't been too terrible. And you look at you look at movies that kind of deal with with choice and the choices people make. And I'm excited. I'm excited to see what creators come out with that are that, that are going to capture our attention and and make a connection with us yeah i mean next year uh or i guess maybe later this year certainly into next year uh it's going to be a blockbuster arama because there are a number of big high level marvel movies that are just sitting waiting sitting on a shelf waiting to be released james bond uh, uh, you know, all those kinds of films uh, that are pure escapism as well. And I think that people are going to be uh, looking towards that. But it will be interesting to see if the box office will be able to sustain a giant movie every week or two. Now, you know, as it goes now, you get a big hit and then maybe three weeks later, something else comes along to replace it. You don't generally get blockbuster uh, or a blockbuster a week. And I mean, it won't be exactly that, but it'll be pretty darn close to it. So I'm curious. I'm curious to see if there will be uh, at some point blockbuster fatigue, because I, I also think that one of the things that the, the pandemic has done here is broadened the kinds of movies that people are willing to watch. Uh, I know that over the last 15 months or so, I've been reviewing as many movies as ever. People are saying, oh, there's nothing coming out. Well, there's a ton of movies. I'm still there's still 10 movies a week coming out, uh, but a lot of them are smaller. And uh, sometimes those small movies 
would get uh, shoved under the, the carpet simply because they were opening up against, uh, you know, a big Marvel movie or a Fast and Furious film or something like that. But people have been gravitating towards some smaller films and I think rediscovering the pleasures of watching, you know, a drama that only has three or four characters and takes place in very limited sets and nobody blows up the earth. And I, they're moving forward. I'm hoping that people stay connected to that because that little mid-range drama that costs, you know, 20 to $40 million kind of disappeared from the studios for a little while. And, and to a large extent has. They'd rather spend $350 million and make a billion dollars at the box office than spend $35 million and make $50 million. Uh, so... Um, I hope, though, there will be a renaissance of smaller, interesting, character-driven films that people will go see because during the pandemic, we've been, you know, again, exposed to them in our homes and we realize that it's okay to spend two hours when nothing really happens with characters except some emotional fireworks and not gunplay kinds of fireworks. Well, and the format, I mean, the format of, a, like you just said, like two hours um, is is special. And, and the way to have that contained and resolved in that format. I'm mean, looking back, let's say, uh, in 2020 into April and May and June, my, my wife and I were and we always try to watch the same kind of episodic serial show. But, you know, whether it was in Netflix or, or Crave or Amazon Prime, you know, there are so many one season shows. Mm-hmm. And, we're, and we're just left hanging and waiting for season two. And so I'm glad you mentioned Nomadland, and you should. I mean, it did it, 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 such a great job in the award season. But we watched it to the end. It wasn't exactly our cup of tea, but, I mean, mm-hmm. the quality of it, and you're the expert, not me, but the quality of it, it kept us hooked in that story. We did not know where this was going. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, again, it, it's not so much – a story just about someone who has lost everything. As she says near the end of the movie, she's kind of found everything. She's found herself for the first time. So her husband is gone. Uh, Her job is gone. The little town that she lived in in Nevada was a company town. It didn't survive the factory closing down. So she hops in a van and she drives, she becomes a nomad. She drives across the country following the weather and the work along the way. Um, And that sounds like a downer. You tell people that much, you're like, oh man, this is, this is a, Terrible. But for me, I thought it was a really hopeful movie about finding community, finding uh, your place in the world, where you belong. And once you find that place, making it your own and making the best of it. And so it's not a depressing movie. And I also love how it was a mix of, you know, great actors like Francis McDormand and David Strathairn and then non-actors like Bob Reed, uh, who is, uh, you know, uh, Bob Willis, who is uh, an actual nomad. He's one of those people that that lives in a van and travels across the country and it was him and, and another uh, number of others in the film and i thought that they brought again authenticity which you know for me goes a a very long way when you have a slight ish kind of story like that well and authenticity it's another theme that's come up again i mean that's that that's you and that that's that story and and looking kind of looking forward for a bit i mean you've had such a great career and continue to be so relevant and followed you know tell us more about about the books about what you're doing now about kind of what what are some what's some unfinished business that you have that 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 drives you to come come in the home office every day and continue Mm -hmm. to create content well i have uh for the the last well i keep saying the last 15 months i mean the pandemic really has has shaped things and, and turned things 
on their heads a little bit. Um, and so I've been uh, experimenting with lots of different ways of making content here. Um, there are a, a number of web series that I did. I did a, a 40 episodes of a show called In Isolation With, uh, which I interviewed everyone from, you know, Steve Earle and, uh, you know, Rob Brydon, the great British comedian, uh, to whoever else. I mean, there was a, a wide list of, of people there. I, I found the high, I, I watched the highlight reel on, I think, one of the CTV websites. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that was a lot of fun to do. Um, it was something that uh, I did for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I wanted to figure out the art of the Zoom interview. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, and this was early on, I started doing that show in April last year. Uh, I thought, you know, I have to figure out how to do these things. So um, I did that. Um, I've done a number of podcasts. Uh, I, uh, one was uh, What to Watch When You've Already Watched Everything Else. That was an audio podcast that's on iHeart. And it is uh, recommendations for binging and for movie watching. And then uh, a clip from an interview that I've done with one of the stars. So uh, there was that. Uh, what else? I mean, it just, it, I did a, a, a series called Booze and Reviews where I'd uh, tell you about a film and then show you how to make a, a drink to enjoy while watching the film. Um, it, <laughs> and so that plus all the stuff that I've been doing. And there's another podcast which will be coming out uh, soon called Last Call because I thought you know, uh, during the, the real sort of height of the lockdown, I know the world is in various stages of it now, but during the, the height of the lockdown here in Toronto, um, nothing was open uh, except for grocery stores and, and very essential services. And so I thought, well, let's, you know, we all want to go out and have a drink, sit at a bar and, and see what's going on. So all in this podcast, take you around the world to the great bars of the world and uh, tell you the history of them and, and give you a, an idea of what they are. So we go to Harry's Bar in uh, Harry's New York Bar in Paris, the home of the Bloody Mary. We go to Sardi's in New York where uh, my wife and I got married. We go to uh, uh, the Tonga Room in San Francisco, one of the classic tiki bars. And that features kind of uh, storytelling, podcasting, lots of sound effects like an old time radio show almost. Uh, plus interviews with people who are uh, either experts in the field or, or connected to the venue one way or the other. And that one's been a lot of fun to do and really has, uh, like all these other things, has honed a new skill for me. Uh, I, I really wanted to walk out of the pandemic uh, with more than I went into it with. So I've learned how to edit audio. I've learned how to edit video in a way that I never did before. And so all those things have... And I'm sure there's others. There's a there's a thing called Krauss clips, which is uh, up there, which is like minute long um, clips from from interviews, all based on a subject. So you have John Baptiste from the Stephen Colbert show, uh, you know, talking about his ability to change his style of music and and why that's important and all those sort of things. So they're kind of like little um, uh, inspirational minutes that you can listen to and hopefully feel a little better at the end of them than you did at the beginning. And so all those things have, have kept me busy, plus all the, the other stuff that I've been doing, all the radio and television that I do. And for me, it has been um, kind of invigorating to be able to come in here, sit, have an idea, and then execute it and make it happen. Uh, and, and for me, that's kind of exciting. The world has opened up a little bit. You know, the, the In Isolation With show wouldn't have been possible, really, 
10 years ago, you know, uh, it, or it certainly would have been a much different looking kind of show. Um, so, you know, that has has helped me forge a path forward and feel better about just being here in this chair all the time. Wow. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, before I give you some of my feedback and comments, I will say, Richard, you got to take a vacation. You know what? You are correct. <laughs> and and for any other, any number of reasons, I don't relax well and never have. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, we are looking into that right now. Okay. Hopefully safely. Yeah. Listen, what you've described and, you know, I, I've spent my time in the, in the media business on, on the business side, mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, hiring executive producers who then hired talent. I mean, it was always on the digital side, not the TV side. So I never got to cast someone like, like yourself. Um, but over COVID, like I've started three businesses. I've reinvigorated two businesses, like, uh, very similar to like to listen to you and what I've gone through, like the podcast while, while Andrew and I really, Andrew dreamt it up before COVID as soon as COVID hit. And then everybody became a podcaster. Yeah. We actually right. hit pause. We decided we were going to collect the content and then wait until it opened up a bit over last summer when those people are tired of doing this. Cause they really didn't want to be doing it. They like everybody else and not you, we're not going to accuse you of this, but everyone else who uses kind of LinkedIn as their persona to stay relevant, everyone had a podcast. And yeah. so it's like, I don't want to compete with that. And for you, I mean, that's, that's not your objective. Your objective is authentic content within, you know, the things that you find important. Mm -hmm. Well, and yeah, and, and it, it is interesting that everyone has a podcast. I mean, it, it's, I think the Guinness Book of World Records uh, for most listened to podcasts, the record was held by Stephen Merchant and Ricky Gervais for a long time. And I'm not sure if that's still the case, but it was an astronomical number of people that, that were listening to it every week. And Stephen Merchant said, well, to be fair, there were only two podcasts at the time. And now there's 600,000 at least. You know, everyone's got a podcast. And, and it is difficult to cut through the noise out there. Uh, and uh, I think that for me, with the ones that I've done, have either been, uh, during the pandemic, have been kind of offering a service. Here's what to, to listen to or to what to watch uh, and keep yourself entertained during it. Or the Last Call podcast, which isn't out yet. But that one is to just make it feel a little less like we're just stuck in our homes. It's supposed to transport you away somewhere else to a bar around the world somewhere and you can pretend that you're there if not actually sitting at the bar well with the recent announcement by from spotify of uh picking up the call her daddy podcast uh, which you and i are not those kinds of creators uh, or maybe you have not listened to that if let's do it once you'll you'll know very quickly whether it's your cup of tea or not and i'm using cup of tea twice on the podcast i've never even used that before but uh but i think it's an appropriate term <laughs> Yes, I'm. Well, I'm drinking a cup of tea right now, so oh, I, I, I I will agree with you. No, I you know all the podcasts that I've done uh, have been uh, mostly limited. I mean, there is a, a podcast of my radio show uh, that's been going for years. That's I don't know how old it is now. It's as long as podcasts have been around, I think. Um, but uh, the other ones are limited. They, the, none of these are meant to be um, you know going on forever. The the in isolation with. Uh, was meant to be 40 episodes, and and that was it. I did 40 episodes. I thought I'd move on to something else. And everything, to me, uh, in new media, I, I feel you you don't have to play by the rules that you used to have to play. Do seasons? Do you know all that kind of stuff that 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 we were taught in radio and television? 
and uh, the, the the formatting of them is different than radio or television. And you know, I, I've learned a, a great deal about that over the last little while. And the thing that's been cool is I've been able to experiment and make things while I'm learning. So there is a marked difference between the first episode of Last Call and the the more recent ones. Because as I say, the, I mean, I think I thought at the time it sounded really cool, but it, it was noisy. It was busy. There were a lot of sound effects on it and that kind of thing. I've stripped all a lot of that back. And now we're just down again to the authentic essence of the story. And it works just as well. But I learned that by doing it. And that's what's cool about online. And what you're describing, and we've heard it from many successful people like yourself on this podcast is, you know, the concept, I'm still from Nike, the concept of, the, of just do it. I mean, I'll yeah. put it another way, maybe in product speak, you know, it's, it's experimentation and iteration and never, you know, you can be happy with the product as is, but it's never too sacred that you'll reinvent it the next time around. I've made a living as a writer for many years. And, and uh, my idea of writing is that the art of it is in the rewriting. And so I am not precious. Uh, I will, I will write. Uh, I mean, one of the I wrote a book a few years ago um, about a movie called The Devils, Ken Russell movie called The Devils, and it took years to write. Um, it was made in 1970, released in 1971. Everyone that was involved at that point when I was researching it was older. A lot of them had retired. They didn't have agents anymore. They were living in Europe, all over the world. It took a long time to track down the various people that I needed to talk to to write this book. And uh, I wrote it and it was long-ish when I finished it, handed it in and my editor and I, uh, and then I took a break from it because I'd, I had not taken a break from it for about like, two and a half years. And I took a break from it. My editor uh, started working on it. And then I went back and reread it. And I was like, you know what? It's way too long. And that's when the red pencil came out and we just started gouging it. And now I think it's the book that it always should have been. But if you're precious about all this work, or if you think, oh, I, I spent a month writing this one chapter or whatever, uh, you'll, I don't, I, I think you'll compromise the end product. You can't be precious about this stuff. No, it's great advice for everyone listening. So, so Richard, on the show, we, we like to ask all the guests some standard questions. And, okay. uh, and I want to hit you with those, those now before we uh, say goodbye for today. Sure. So uh, the first one, that's a tough one, but maybe it'll be tip of your tongue. You know, what's your most memorable career moment? Um, there have been a few. When I, when I look back, I mean, just some of the kind of real obvious stuff is uh, like interviewing Elizabeth Taylor at the Cannes Film Festival was pretty incredible. Um, you know, uh, the, the first time that, you know, I took a flight to interview somebody, uh, you know, was, was cool. But I, I mean, for me, I think there, there are those moments that are, are certainly markers that, that means something all the way along. But I also just think about the, the sense of accomplishment. And I think that's really what, what drives me is I love making stuff. I like when things are, uh, go from an idea scrawled on, the, on a bar napkin that I shove in my pocket and then I find it a week later and goes, oh yeah, that is a good idea. And then eventually it becomes a book or an article or a podcast or whatever it is. And I think that's what, uh, I would have to say, and it's a really amorphous answer, I know, but it is for me a sense of this got made, this now exists because it was an idea and now it's not, it's a tangible thing. And that to me 
every time out is important. I like to look forward rather than than kind of look backwards. And a lot of the stuff that that I've done uh, in my career has been very cool, and I'm, I'm thrilled to have done it. Maybe you know what? Maybe my first book. Maybe you know, if I want to think of it now that I do think about it, maybe the first book because I had always wanted to write a book. And when you sign to do a book, uh, you get uh, 25 copies or something uh, guaranteed. You get a box of 25 copies to give to your parents and friends and things. And so when the first book came out, um, I had seen a mock-up version of it, but I hadn't seen the, the actual book itself. And then one day, the 25 books arrived, and it was in a big box. And I uh, sat there forever staring at that box before I opened it because... I had wanted to be able to look at a bookshelf and see my name on the spine of a book for so long that I knew once I opened that box, that dream was gone. And then what do you do? Well, you have to write another book or you have to create another television or you have to do whatever. And that moment of just sitting there and staring at that box was for me a career high. Amazing story. You know, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. We've heard, we've heard all kinds of stories over, over the episodes and uh, powerful. It's powerful. a tough question. Yeah. yeah. No, we know. There's been some interesting answers. That that's for sure. <laughs> uh, we do have a couple more for you, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw in a special one at the end. Uh, that's just for you, by the way. Okay. Um, so, you've done a great job of telling us about the origins of your career and the the, the future of your career. When when you think about your mindset, kind of today, if you can channel back to that 16 year old, you know, radio DJ, is there anything that quickly resonates for you to say, I can't believe I thought that way. And maybe not 16, that's pretty young, but maybe when you were in your twenties early on in your career, a way you thought or approached, you know, a, a situation or a problem that today you would be like, ah, oh, that kid had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. I think that, uh, we talked earlier about being authentic. And I think, um, one of the things that I would say is that when I was younger and a younger broadcaster, and I mean, this lasted for a while because I think I had, imposter syndrome. I didn't think that I belonged there, uh, either at the radio station uh, that, that fired me or when I was working at CBC, I used to be on uh, Morningside with Peter Zosky years ago, and I couldn't believe I was sitting in that studio. Yeah, I'm like, that's big. I didn't, that's yeah, big. It was, that was a big moment, right? And that led to a lot of things. That's what got me my first book deal. That's, you know, it led to a lot of things, but I couldn't believe that I was there. And, and uh, kicking around CBC radio for, for a time. And it, it in my head, if I was to to uh, talk to that guy, I would say, don't try and sound like all the other people that you've heard. Like in the early days when I was a DJ, we used to get these air checks and they are um, you could buy them. I don't know if you still can or not, but famous DJs like Charlie Tuna and Wolfman Jack and things would sell their air checks, which is essentially um, every time they turn their microphone on the tape would start to roll. So you just heard them announcing the song. You'd hear a couple of seconds of the song. They'd turn the microphone off and, and it would cut off. And you just got a sense of their style and how they did it. And I used to buy those uh, and listen to them and try and emulate them. And then I thought that I had to sound like Lloyd Robertson. I, he's just got that beautiful voice. So I thought I had to be uh, that flow. I had to have that flow, that uninterrupted flow that he had in that voice. And I thought all those things. And, and uh, then I realized that when you are yourself and you let all that go, that 
people respond to it and people didn't care whether I said um or ah. And they didn't care whether um, I sounded like Lloyd Robertson or Charlie Tuna or Wolfman Jack. What they cared about was that I sounded like myself. And that's when I started to become successful. So I would tell my younger self to forget about all that other noise. Uh, but in some ways, I mean, we were just kind of taught that. We were kind of taught, like, look at who's very successful and do what they're doing. Uh, you know, I would say be more punk rock about it. Be yourself. Do what you're going to do and and see what happens. It's, it's amazing, amazing advice. And it's advice for any industry, really, which is if it's be, if it's being done, it's not original. So, yeah, that's it, the thing. It, it, I, I often find uh, it, when I'm talking about films or talking about stories or talking about stories like that, the more specificity there is in a story, often the more universal it is. So the specificity in this story is that, you know, I, I was working in radio and trying to sound like somebody else and it didn't work. And then it wasn't until I found my own voice that I became successful. Well, that applies to any job that you have, whether you're talking for a living or you're, you're uh, you know, doing whatever. If you are yourself and bring yourself to it, you'll be better and you'll be happier. Well, thank you for that. And you, you, you certainly took my last question from me with that answer. So I'll hit you with the one I was waiting to ask you all this time. If you had to pick one, what would be your favorite movie? Uh, you know, it, 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 it's like a Rolodex in my head because there's so many, mm -hmm. but um, I will tell, I'll cheat a little bit. And I will tell you that whenever the Godfather comes on, I always on television, if I'm just flicking around, I will always say, I'll stay till the uh, leave the gun, take the cannoli scene. And then of course I watch well beyond that uh, a while ago, this was a few years ago. Now we were watching it at home on television and my wife was on her iPad and she said, well, the Godfather's playing on the big screen around the corner. And so we flicked off the television, we went over, watched it, and it's a completely different experience in the theater. So The Godfather would be up there. Pulp Fiction would be up there. Another one that when it comes on television, I always think, oh, I'll, I'll watch it up until Zed's dead, baby. And then I, you know, obviously you have to go beyond that. And so there's there's a handful of it. Depends on my mood, depends on the day. Uh, but The Godfather would be uh, way, way, way up on the list. Well, well, thank you for that. And you, you obviously picked picked a great one. I'm I'm assuming you're going with Godfather Part One. Godfather Part One. I know people argue with me about Part Two. I love Part Two as well, uh, but Part One for me, I think there's a bit of nostalgia in there, and I just think it's such a beautiful looking movie that it just uh, and one of the greatest closing scenes ever. And yeah. Well, since we're on the Godfather and we have you on the show, I mean, we we, we got to take it up a notch. So. I mean, there is part three, and without critiquing part three, um, uh, one one weekend, I must have been like 18 years old, one of my friends had a cottage, and I think it was like the winter, so we didn't really go outside or swimming or anything, it was the middle of winter, he had a version, or his father bought a version, his father was a whole big movie buff, his father bought a version of The Godfather that basically put the story in chronological Yo, glued order. Glued them all together, yeah that, yeah. that was the first time I saw it. And, and it was it was rough. I had to go rewatch it, you know, yeah. in order one, two and three to really understand the movie. Yeah, I, I, I've not seen that cut. And there's a new cut of the third one as well uh, that changes the order up and adds some things. Coppola is a big tinkerer. He likes to tinker with his movies at the Cannes Film Festival one year at 830 in the morning. I saw uh, Apocalypse Now Redux. And the, the, he has since cut, recut it a couple of more times uh, and released those. 
but I saw the first rehash of it. And afterwards, I went to um, the American Pavilion. There's all these little pavilions there, and the American Pavilion had good food. So I went to the American Pavilion, and Roger Ebert is there, and Timothy Bottoms, who was in Apocalypse Now, and I was talking to them. And uh, Timothy Bottom said, where did you just come from? What have you seen? What's going on? And I said, well, I just saw your movie. I saw Apocalypse Now at 8.30 in the morning. And he went, wow, man, that is rough. That is early <laughs> for that movie. And uh, he wasn't wrong. But uh, uh, um, Coppola, uh, I think, uh, by putting the movie in some kind of order, and, I, and to be honest, I don't know off the top of my head whether he did it or somebody else did it. But I, that's that's not the way that story was meant to be told i don't think it's like there is a version of christopher nolan's memento kicking around somewhere that puts it in order and and it is such a lesser movie when you see them rather than uh when you see that version rather than the version that was released initially and often i think um you know when filmmakers are going to go back and recut and play around with their movies I frequently think that your first gut instinct when you've been immersed in that movie as a filmmaker for many years is probably your best one. So just leave it as is. It's great insight and perspective. And hopefully they listen to you. I know that's not generally your role. Uh, they, uh, nobody does. So yeah. Well, I, well, <laughs> well, I mean, I'll tell you, as we're talking about this and we're going a whole other direction, you know, my, my daughter, I guess she's uh, in high school. And at the beginning of COVID, she took it upon herself as kind of school shut down. She wanted to watch the Marvel movies in order, not the order they were released, but the actual chronological order. And um, and that's something, as, as you mentioned earlier in our chat, that Marvel has all this content sitting on the shelf. So I'm curious about what periods and what characters and she's probably going to have to go rewatch it. <laughs> well, they've had to shelve it because uh, if you release one, because they are such a spider's web, uh, and so integrated that if you release one, it affects the stories of two or three of them to come. And so they're all made, but you, they, they have to be released in order, I think. And so, yeah, it'll be a little while, I think, before we start seeing uh, this major, uh, like what I think will be like a fire hydrant being opened of Marvel movies hitting the big screen. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that social time with people eventually. And uh, yeah. and I really appreciate, Andrew really appreciates your time today. It was it was amazing to hear you, to chat with you, to be able to dialogue with you. It was a real treat. So thank you. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, and you know, best of luck with the podcast. The Backstage Project Podcast is brought to you by Ready, Set, Go. They help organizations create extraordinary digital products. To learn more, go to readysetgo.design. If you would like to get in touch with Mark and the team at the Backstage Project Podcast, please email us at info at tpbpodcast.com.